Pastor Sam's the executive pastor at Christ Central Presbyterian Church, um, church that I grew up in. Uh, he's doing a lot of just amazing ministries throughout um, his life. He was a missionary. Uh, he lived out in Merritt Island for three years where he was, uh, when he was single, just in, in the late 90s, uh, missionary, a lot of uh, different experiences out in the mission field. And uh, he served as the youth pastor at a church called Open Door Presbyterian Church, where our brother Titus was at Open Door for a little bit. Um, he was a youth pastor, and in his youth ministry was a young high school student named Josiah Cha many years ago. And uh, Pastor Sam faithfully served there and raised up just so many, uh, many, many disciples who are impacting the world for Christ and served in, in a lot of different capacities. He's married to Alice, who has a counseling practice up in, in Virginia and is doing some really awesome stuff together. They, they do a lot of uh, marriage seminars, so if throughout the weekend you feel like uh, my wife and I or my husband and I really need some marriage counseling, um, he would be a great person to talk to. Um, him, and, him and Alice have been doing a great ministry together. He's a father to two um, lovely, lovely, just beautiful high school girls, Olivia and Natalie. Um, I have just wonderful memories of them, uh, both now as well as in the past. And uh, he's been a dear br brother and friend to me for um, quite some time. Uh, I, we had met sometime in Virginia when I was still living there. But um, we really got to know each other through a pastoral mentoring group called Scrubs, um, which uh, we're called Scrubs because we realized uh, that we didn't have all that much to offer to God, but we also <clears throat> called ourselves scrubs because we knew that in a certain way we're doing um, a lot of soul care in the ministry of healing. Uh, but, but the bigger reason is because we realize that we're not all that important. We're just a bunch of scrubs who are pointing others to the glory of God. But through that, uh, through that network and, and through that group, we kept in touch with a few other people, um, many of whom you'd recognize uh, but he has been such a dear and faithful friend. I think um, there are maybe a, a handful of people in this earth that I uh, am close with, who I'm friends with, that if my family were somehow to go to a different church and be entrusted to the care of another pastor, um, there are not many people in terms of I trust uh, and I know that my family would grow under his teaching and preaching ministry. I know that if uh, life fell apart, that he would be there for them and would be able to walk with them through the fires of life. I know that he will cast a vision for a church and for the life of discipleship that would be more than just the American dream, but would abandon everything to follow Christ. Um, that whole package, um, and who would uh, be a brother and a friend and a father to them, um, Pastor Sam is one of the few guys on this planet, and I know that uh, this week, as I've been super excited, we, he, he has made himself completely available, given the story. He has changed his flight uh, three times already in order to be with us as long as he can, and then we found out today that Orlando Airport shutting everything down at 2 a.m. on Monday, so he got on the last seat. They told him on United Airlines, you're in the last seat, and he said, I would do. And so whatever he can do in order to, to minister and bless us, um, he will do. And I know that the Lord will use uh, his surrendered heart. So can we give him a big round of applause, Pastor Sam? Come and preach to us. Good evening, Harvest. Good evening. Um, thank you, Pastor uh, David Larry, for that generous uh, introduction and very, very um, humbling uh, introduction. Harvest, this is, I was sharing with someone today as I was uh, before the service. I feel like this church is my home church away from home. My home church away from home. I'll, actually, I, I visited back in 2009, and that's the first time I preached on a Sunday morning at Harvest. And then in 2010, uh, we spoke, uh, my wife and I, but I spoke, I was the primary speaker at the youth retreat over the winter in December of 2010, so some of you might have been there. And then, uh, and then in 2015, I came back for R&R. &R. <laughs> and 2016, actually, I was supposed to speak that summer, but there was a, a, a horrific tragedy nearby in Orlando, the nightclub shooting uh, that happened. And it was the week of the nightclub shooting. And therefore, Pastor DL did the right thing of, as your pastor, coming and giving a pastoral word to the congregation. So I've been here a number of times. And I think there's not any church that I've spoken at more than the churches that I've, when I, when I currently serve somewhere, than, than Harvest. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know if we sh I should tell you, but sometimes these speaking engagements, they, they, don't, they come up last minute. 
I remember the email that I got from Pastor David Larry, um, or DL, I'll just call him DL, because uh, he's such a friend, a few weeks ago, and the subject line said it all, Hail Mary. And if you know anything about football, the Hail Mary is usually the last throw of the quarterback with the last, last attempt to hopefully get into the end zone and score something. And uh, Pastor DL, DL has, has been praying and conversing with someone who was actually supposed to be here, God willing, but it didn't materialize. So he threw me a Hail Mary pass a few weeks ago, and very few people, very few, I would say maybe two or three, would I, as soon as I get an email like that, call my senior pastor and ask my wife immediately, would you allow me to go? Would you allow me to go? And I got a resounding, overwhelming support from both, because both are tremendous, tremendous supporters and respect this church and Pastor David Larry and, uh, and Olivia so much. It was an automatic yes. And then we started praying and preparing for this weekend. And God willing, I'll be with you through Monday. God willing, okay? God willing. He's right, I've changed my flight three times. Thank you, United, for having a no-fee change policy during hurricane season. But we'll take it one service at a time, amen? And I think Pastor, uh, Pastor DL said it well. We should go with, into every worship service, every time into God's presence, not knowing if it would be our last. Not knowing if it would be our last. And I hope that that will be the posture by which we listen and hopefully receive, to believe, and to respond tonight, as if this were our last service. And again, not to sensationalize it, but that is the reality. Some of us may not come back tomorrow just because something comes up. Some of us may not because for some reason you are hindered from coming. So let's lean in today and see what God has to share with us. Uh, I do bring greetings from one pastor who, uh, during my time at Open Door, Yes, uh, Josiah was a high school student, but there was a college student at Open Door uh, who led worship for us. His name is Albert Young, okay? And uh, he's a beloved brother, and he texted me as I was on the plane, wishing he could join me. And I had, had lunch with him on Sunday, specifically talking about your church and, and uh, my time here and how much he just glows when he talks about harvest. You mean the world to him. He loves you. He misses you, and you are a big part of who he is today. Let me start with the story, and then I'll get into my text. Okay. Ten years ago, almost exactly ten years ago, September of 2009, I took a week-long uh, road trip that served as a personal pilgrimage. It was one of the few road trips where I've just taken it on my own. Uh, I, I asked my wife, could I take about 72 hours, I live in Virginia, to go visit places in New Jersey and Pennsylvania that had personal significance to me. I wanted to visit every single school, every home, and even every church that I had, had attended since we had immigrated to the States when I was four years old. So over a weekend, literally, I, I went from home to home, school to school. Some schools, they allowed me access. Uh, some schools, they didn't allow me access. And over that, over that weekend, I visited about, because I went to seven different schools from first grade to senior year in high school. And I went to every single home, every church. And it was, it was a walk down memory lane, as you can imagine. And there was one town, some of you, if you're from the Northeast or uh, the New Jersey, New York area, it's, a, it's, a pretty, it's become a well better known town called Edgewater, New Jersey. Literally, it's on the edge of the Hudson River, which overlooks right into downtown Manhattan. And uh, I, I, when I visited, that was the second place that we lived at um, when I, after we had immigrated in the late 70s. And all these memories came flooding back. That's the town where I learned to ride a bicycle. That's the town where I remember being lost for the very first time on the very first day of school as I got off at the wrong bus stop. I still remember being totally lost. I just knew the name of the town. I remember a police officer coming up to me. Son, where are you from? Where do you live? Edgewater? He goes, I am in Edgewater. Where do you, where do you live? Edgewater. And thank God I got back home. And then I remembered a schoolyard where a vivid memory came. And again, it's, it's, the irony strikes me. 
that I actually, in second grade, some of you might be surprised to hear this, I actually led a gang in the schoolyard, okay? There are two rival gangs in the second grade in our schoolyard. The, the big gang, the cool gang, they were called the Hurricanes because actually a hurricane had just come through New Jersey uh, prior to that, and this is where all the cool kids were. And they were so cool that the girls were part of their gang, and they would send the girls over to our gang to kiss us as a weapon, okay, to attack us, okay? We were the misfits. We were the blue jets. How did you get into this gang? I drew you a picture of a blue jet and gave it to you. That was my short-lived career as a gang leader. All those memories started coming back. And, uh, but there were a couple locations in that town, some disturbing memories came to mind. I remember there was a, a, a public pool, and near the public pool there was like a little shelter, and that was the, I, I just, it just struck me for the first time in decades, that was the first time I was exposed to a pornographic magazine, where a bunch of older kids in the neighborhood brought something over to the younger kids, and I was exposed to pornography for the very first time when I was about first or second grade. And then right around from that pool, there was a house, and as soon as I passed that house, another memory came flooding back into my mind. It was when one of my classmates, a friend, exposed her private parts to me just as a, like a fun little trick. You see... In those two locations, I was, I was struck by how much of my deep-seated sins, struggles, insecurities, and addictions stem from sources and origins and influences that were not godly, healthy, and honoring. Rather, it led me down a, pain, a path of battling with shame and secrecy. Friends, tonight I'm going to talk about a heavy but important topic because it's in the Bible and God wants to talk about it. It's the power of shame and how much it plays a major part in our human relationships and especially in our relationship with God. And you'll see it from the very beginning of the Bible, which I'm going to read from in just a moment. And before I do so, let me ask you this question, which I hope to answer. If shame is and continues to be a major part of your story, what difference can and does the gospel make in giving you hope? And what difference does the gospel make in leading you on a journey towards wholeness, healing, and freedom in Christ? I hope I'm, I'm striking a nerve with some, if not all of you, because I believe it's, it's a part of all of our journeys to varying degrees. If you turn with me, Genesis chapter 2, I believe Pastor D.L., I actually, every, every time I preach at a church, I, I try to listen to the sermons, not all of them, but review all the sermons that were preached uh, in the previous weeks and even months, and I, I actually came across that there was a relationship series that you, came, you did, uh, I, I believe, in the spring. And then I think in one of the messages, it focused, in, it focused on Genesis chapter 2, and that passage or the, the scripture from that message ended on this verse. And this is where I'm going to pick us up. So Genesis chapter 2, pick it up from verse 25, and I'm going to read the majority of chapter 3, and then we're just going to see what we can learn about God, what we can learn about ourselves, and how we are to rightly relate to him, ourselves, and others as a result. Okay, so Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, I'm reading from the ESV. Let me just read these verses aloud, and I'll go straight into chapter 3. And the man and the, his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word is right there, early in Scripture. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you may not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her. Just let me pause right there. Oftentimes, the, <laughs> I think the ladies are blamed for this, but guess who was standing right there next to Eve saying nothing? That's another sermon for another time. And he ate, it says in verse 6. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Notice that he called Adam. Brothers, We can't blame the sisters. God knew where he had to start. He said, where are you, Adam? But that's a sermon for another time. And then he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife, and the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God, here's my last verse, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and clothed them. Brothers and sisters and friends, would you bow with me as I pray and ask God to, to speak to us? On this message, I, I titled The Shame No More. Father, I thank you that you are faithful, that you will never and can never fail, and you're always, always working. And I pray that through this message, through this night, through this weekend, your work would be made known. And that work would be something that is deep within our hearts. And would you use this message and this time to illuminate, to, uh, to encourage, to transform, to convict, and to heal so that people ultimately will see you clearly and be drawn to you and allow you to do the work that only you can do uh, by your grace, by your mercy, and by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, the main idea of my message tonight. And I believe actually it's the main idea of scripture. God's grace pursues us to our deepest shame. God's grace is not satisfied with the surface. Brothers and sisters, his grace wants to get to to the deepest parts of our shame. And so tonight... I'm going to give you just some reflections on this passage. I'll walk us through it. And then at the second and towards the end of my message, I'm going to leave you with some applications and implications as a result of what this passage teaches us. Number one is this. The first reflection I want to share with you is this. The original plan was to live in freedom from shame. That was the original 
plan from the beginning. That's why I started in Genesis chapter 2, 25. They were both naked and there was no shame. Let me read to you a couple definitions that I found very helpful for me of what shame is. If he was to free us from shame to, so that we would live free of shame, then what is shame? Let me give you some uh, definitions from different authors and speakers and researchers. Brene Brown, she's an author and researcher, she says this, shame is an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. Two authors, Daniel Green and Mel Lawrence, they write this, shame is the subjective, personal, painful, emotional experience that occurs when one feels disconnected. disconnected. It's the painful awareness of feeling inadequate, unworthy, and exposed. And I'll leave you with one more definition. Craig Groeschel, a pastor down south. Oh, we're, we are down south. Sorry about that. I feel like I'm usually preaching in Virginia, okay? Uh, shame is based on an intensely painful experience which leads us to believing a lie that our pain and failure is who we are, not just something we've done or had done to us. Those are great. I think hopefully it's helpful definitions. And if some of you are like, can you repeat those? No, I don't have enough time. But I'll pass them on to Pastor DL, okay? And he can, he can post those. So brothers and sisters, the common denominator in the, those definitions is this. It's painful. It's hard to describe. It's hard to even share what you're feeling because the pain is so real and deep. The pain of not feeling accepted, feeling unworthy, and that you just don't belong. I have to wonder tonight if there's someone coming into this meeting, sitting in these seats, who are feeling like they're unworthy of God's love, that there's no way that God could ever accept them, and they just simply don't belong anywhere. Those are the characteristics in the voice of shame. And I'm here to tell you, to remind you, that's not the way it was supposed to be. See, in the first human relationship, the marriage between a man and a woman, even though they were physically naked, they felt no shame because there was no presence of sin. If you look with me in verse 25, just briefly there in chapter 2, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. The phrase not ashamed can be translated, they were unabashed, they were not disconcerted. That word shame is, uh, in the original language, is a feeling of being insignificant in front of someone else. And the Bible teaches from the very beginning, that's not the way it was supposed to be. I believe this is so important because oftentimes for many Christians, not all, we oftentimes begin the gospel presentation or understanding of the gospel by saying we are sinners, which it's true. I think we're missing a preface to that statement, but we were not meant to be apart from God. Brothers and sisters, if I can simplify it in, in just more simple layman's terms, you were born to be found. You and I were born and created by God to be found by him and found in him. That's the way it was supposed to be. Because if, if you understand that, if you believe that that's the way it was supposed to be, it gives you a different picture of God. A, big, a different picture of God the Father. Because when we see him as our creator, our loving Father, he desires and des designed and desires for us to live in a joyful, unabashed, life-giving communion with him and one another. 
That was the mind of God, the heart of God, when he created people in his image, you and me. He's not a God where you start with two strikes when you come up to the plate. That's not the way it was supposed to be. How, how do I know that? Because it says in Genesis chapter 1, if you just go one chapter earlier in verse 31, it says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And that included Adam. It included humans, uh, creatures made in his own image. He said it was good, it was good, it was good. Most of us grew up from the time we remember hearing, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. And I'm here to tell you that's opposite of what God thinks of you. You're good. Again, we sin. Yes, we have a nature of sin. We need a savior. We need redemption. We need cleansing and forgiveness. But that's not the way it was supposed to be. We were supposed to live in freedom from shame. That was the original plan. So friends, even this weekend, what's it called? Renewal and retreat, right? I like that word renewal because it's just reminding us of what it was supposed to be. So secondly, the second reflection is the original plan was for us to live in freedom from shame. And the second reflection is this. The enemy's strategy is to keep us shackled in shame. He doesn't want us to know the original plan. He doesn't want us to experience the blessing and the benefit of the original plan. So he wants to keep us shackled by shame from our sin. And that's what, we, that's what happens here in verses uh, uh, 1 through 4, and 1 through 5, excuse me, in chapter 3. You see, in those five verses, the adversary, the enemy, is introduced into the narrative to distort the word of God and to cast doubt on the goodness of God. If there's something that the enemy has been doing from the beginning of time, he always wants you to doubt the word of God. That's why we preach the word of God. That's why everything that you do at, at harvest is based on the word of God. And also he, he wants you to cast doubt on the, on the goodness of God in your life. And I love that we sang that song, that he is so, so good. That's, that's his strategy from the beginning. Look in verses 1 through 5. It says in verse 1, did God actually say this? And he keeps on trying to misquote God, uh, and, but God corrects it. No, 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 no. And the, and the serpent is twisting the word of God around. And, and then also the woman, for some reason in this, in this passage, she doesn't have an accurate understanding of what was relayed to Adam, which was supposed to be relayed to her. So already the word of God is, is being twisted and contorted and, and mis, uh, misapplied. And that's one of the ways that God will keep you shackled. Uh, the, the enemy will keep us shackled by shame. The combination of deceit, distrust, and doubt becomes a slippery slope which leads to the fall of the human condition, which we find in verses 6 through 7 and then 16 through 19. So she took of its fruit, it says in verse 6, and she also gave it to, some to her husband, and with her he ate. And as a result of their sin and rebellion, there is a profound disconnection. Check this out. Not just between them and God, but them with one another. Look in verse 7 with me. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I want to just point something out. How do we know that shame is a part of our lives, that maybe the enemy still has a shackled? It's this. Adam and Eve hid from one another before they hid from God. In other words, if you cannot be who you really are in front of another person because you're afraid of rejection, you're afraid of them um, casting you out and saying you don't belong here, Shame is a part of your story and narrative today. And so in verse 8, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the, the trees of the garden. Just the irony of that. They tried to hide from God. Maybe we can hide from one another, but friends, um, I'm here. One of the things I want to share with you tonight is you can never, ever hide from God. And instead of that making you afraid, I hope that frees you. In other words, there's nothing he already doesn't, he, he, nothing that God already sees and knows that you even have to fully explain because he already sees and knows. The question is, will you turn to him? Which leads to my third reflection. It's this, the gospel is God's pursuit to cover us with his grace. The gospel is God's pursuit to cover us with his grace. So here's the good news, brothers and sisters. Shame doesn't have to be the final word in our relationship with one another, and most importantly, in our relationship with God. Even though the enemy was quick to arrive on the scene after the first human marriage, a human relationship was established, Watch this. God was just as quick to appear after Adam and Eve, now in a broken, distant, and disconnected relationship with him. He was just as quick to appear. I want you to look at verse 9. Verse 9. And I love this because this is actually littered throughout Scripture. When shame seems to have the final word, in verse 9, in my translation, that sentence starts with the word, but... Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you're hiding. I don't know how you're hiding. I don't know who you don't feel like you belong to anymore. And I'm here to tell you, the gospel always starts with a but. When you think you're done with God, God has just begun. When you think you're done with your faith, God is just getting the faith off the ground. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, where are you? Right there, we already know the heart of God. Where are you? Let me just pause there just for a moment and ask you this question. Where are you? Where are you? And I pray this weekend, today and tomorrow into Sunday and God willing to Monday, hopefully you can honestly answer that question to God. Where are you? What are your fears? What are your struggles? What are you hiding behind? And notice this. God does not ask a question because he doesn't know the answer. This is the first time God gives an opportunity for someone to confess. Brothers and sisters, confession and repentance, note this, is always intended to restore. Confession and repentance is a gift so that we may be restored to God and one another. It's always a gift. Where are you? Where are you? And then he asks in verse light, who told you? In verse 13, what is this that you have done? I just love, again, I, when, I can't, I'm just, I'm going to have to take a little bit of license here. The, 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 the text and, and even the language, it doesn't emphasize the tone. But I think a lot of times when we read these verses or this passage, this is the tone by which we read them. Where are you? Who told you? What is this that you have done? Brothers and sisters, friends at Harvest, I can't, I, I, I can't manufacture it, but I want you to try to visualize it. I want you to envision my face with tears streaming down my cheeks. Where are you? 
told you this lie? What have you done? That is your God. Tears. Tears. I remember about three and a half years ago, my wife and I, we, again, this is something that I think in parenting, you constantly, you seem to be stumbling across things that you find in your kids' rooms, on their phones, on their laptops, notes that they write. And it was one of those moments where I rushed home in the middle of my workday because my wife found something that really, really disturbed her in one of our girls' rooms. And then, uh, of course, I shared in her grief and her sorrow and what I've read and I saw. And then when one of our daughters came home, you know, right away, we brought this to our attention, but it was me bringing her to her attention. Here's why. My wife was in a closet, literally a closet, just crying and crying and crying. And I brought my daughter to the door of my wife's closet, and I, I made her listen to the tears and the cries of her mom. They're not of condemnation. They're not of judgment. They're not of deep disappointment. It's of tremendous sadness and sorrow. With tears, I think God is calling out to some of you. I don't know. Where are you? Why are you trying to run from me? Why are you trying to hide behind man-made things to satisfy you instead of me? Who told you those lies instead of trusting in the truths that I bring? What have you done? What have you done? Not so much what have you done in, in the tone of judgment of what have you done that you don't realize you've done? Brothers and sisters, God is ready to declare and enact a plan in Genesis 3, and I believe in our lives still today, to rescue, redeem, and restore us back to himself, and as a result, the broken relationships in our lives. And so in verse 15, we get a glimpse, a foreshadowing of the, of the cross, of, of, of Christ's sacrifice. Look in there with me. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel. These are the words God declares to the serpent. Again, foreshadowing that Christ's death on the cross is where the enemy bruised his heel. Yes. But Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension is where the enemy's head was crushed. Brothers and sisters, friends, that is where our hope lies. The enemy may try to shackle us, and he'll try to entangle us. He'll maybe bruise our heels, but Christ has already crushed his head. Amen? And that's so important to, because if we have any hope of victory, of freedom, of healing, we have to know that our God is greater than the one who seeks to shackle us to our sin and to our shame. Far greater. And that is the God whose grace is pursuing you and you and you and me today and wants to cover us with his grace because he says you belong to him. And then even further, even more, there's more imagery here. If I can just move us to verses 21 through 20 to 21. You see God's tangible and personal demonstration of grace and kindness by covering Adam and Eve with skins of innocent animals who represent the future sacrifice of Christ's blood and the covering that we have in his righteousness. That's why in verse 20 to 21, it says, or verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his, gar and his wife 
garments of skin and he clothed them, foreshadowing Jesus, who would be called later in John chapter 1, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. And then in Hebrews chapter 9, it says this, uh, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It is tangible. It is personal. It is sacrificial. It was God's own son. I remember hearing the story just a couple of years ago. I was uh, at a retreat, and in my small group, I met a pastor who lost his wife to cancer uh, shortly after they were married. She was diagnosed as they were, I think, dating or engaged, and yet out of just unconditional love for his wife, he walked alongside her through engagement, through the treatment, and then he lost her later on early in their marriage. And he shared the story. Actually, he didn't share, but another friend of ours shared the story of how his wife, after, I think, one day going into treatment at the hospital, another round of radiation or chemo, she came back. And she was, she was kind of naturally an upbeat, optimistic person. But that day in particular, she was down. And she, she, would just, she, she just cried out to her husband, why is God allowing this to happen. If he loved me, I wouldn't be going through this right now. Just honestly, just putting her heart out there. Why? If he loved me, I wouldn't need this treatment. If he loved me, I wouldn't have this illness. Why? Why? But before she could go on, she actually spoke to herself. And she said to her husband, hold on. Oh, that of course he loves me. Because he sent his son to die for me. Brothers and sisters, friends, the Lord loves you. How do you know? How do I know? He sent his only son to die once and for all for you and for me. That's how he wants us to cover, to cover us with his grace by applying his son's blood and righteousness over us. Isn't that great news? Isn't that worth celebrating? Isn't that something we can speak to shame about? Say, shame, you say this about me, but I'm going to tell you what God says about me. He sent his son and let him die for me. So God's grace pursues us to our deepest shame. The plan was to live in freedom from shame. The enemy's strategy is to keep us shackled in shame. And the gospel is God's pursuit to cover us with his grace. So let me walk through just a handful of implications and applications of how this can be brought home and hopefully personalized into your hearts as I wrap up. How do we overcome or address the shame in response to the good news of the gospel. Number one is this. Identify and denounce the lie that you are defined by what you've done or what has been done to you. Identify and denounce the lie that you are defined by what you've done, especially if it's something that leads you to shame or has been done to you. But rather... Because of the gospel in Christ, you are defined by your creator and your savior based on what Jesus has done for you. That is your identity. That's why in Romans 8 it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it's a lie. Denounce it. Declare it because it's based on God's word, but also believe the antithesis of it, which is the gospel says you are defined by what Christ has done for you, not what you have failed to do for him. Amen? That is your identity. Secondly, second implication is this. Confess and repent of the fig leaves and the trees that we hide behind. In other words, anything that you're relying upon uh, to define your worth, your value, your identity apart from God, 
Maybe it's performance-based righteousness. Maybe good works or religious or spiritual activity. Maybe it's your social or relational status. Maybe it's material, professional, educational success, accolades. Or maybe it's an attitude of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Brothers and sisters, according to Colossians, it says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. There is nothing you need to hide behind because you're covered by his righteousness. But confess anything. Repent of anything that you would base your value, worth, and significance in other than Christ. Again, why do we confess? Why do we repent? Because confession and repentance are a gift to return us back to God and to one another. Amen? A couple more. Share your struggles with shame with a safe, honest, and compassionate person in your life. A sermon's not going to do it. As much as I believe in the power of the, the proclamation, the heralding of God's word, that it is living and active, that it is what can transform our minds and it could restore our hearts and it can st- stir our souls. But I believe it is applied, the word of God, through the people of God in the body of Christ. So share your struggles. That's why it says in James 5, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So if shame is something that I believe to varying degrees and levels every one of us uh, struggle with or have struggled with, share that struggle with another. Because shame is just like sin. It breeds and multiplies in secrecy. But when it comes to light, it loses its power over us. Amen? So because you're not defined by what you've done or what's been done against you or to you, but what Christ has done for you, based on that identity, I I encourage you, I invite you, share with a compassionate, honest, trusted brother or sister about your struggle with shame. And then fourthly, I'll leave you with this. Receive the clothing and trust in the covering of Christ's righteousness in and over your life. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 5. Not a new passage, but hopefully a timely one in this message. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And you know what it means to be the righteousness of God, to have the righteousness of God? Let me summarize it in what Jesus heard from heaven at his baptism. This is what it means to have the righteousness of God. This is what it means. When Jesus was baptized in Mark chapter 1, it says this, A voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So what does the righteousness of Christ upon us and in us, imputed to us, covering us mean? It means that when God thinks of you, sees you, hears your prayers, when, and again, we're always on his mind, when a thought of you comes, your beloved, and with you, he is well pleased. One thing I left out in my story at the beginning when I visited Edgewater, New Jersey, was there was a one place I drove by in the neighborhood that actually brought back good memories. It was a local baseball field. When I was a kid, probably the one sport I played until, you know, we had to go home and it got too dark to play was baseball. And when I drove by that baseball field, which to this day, I was just in Edgewater a few, uh, just a couple of months ago, it's still there. See, it was where I experienced some of the greatest and most cherished memories of my childhood, playing baseball with my neighborhood friends. 
And it was such a stark contrast to what I saw just a few blocks away at that pool. And around the corner of that pool was that, was that house. It was such a stark contrast, but it reminded me of this spiritual principle. You see, the enemy wants us to focus on us, to focus on all that we've done wrong. And all the wrongs and the hurts that have been done to us without minimizing, discounting, or, or dismissing how painful those have been. You see, the enemy wants us to focus on those and to forget how much God has been working. And as we just sang, he's always working, amen? He's always working. He's working, he's working in pursuing and covering us with his grace that God has been working, protecting us and guiding us and ultimately pursuing us through the hardships, struggles, and victories in our lives. You see, that baseball field, in some ways, for me, represented something that I could easily put into the back of my mind. And yet, God wants me to remember, even in the midst of some dark things, some painful things, that he was still there. And the greatest place that he can remind us to look is not a baseball field, my friends. <laughs> it's to look up higher than a baseball field. It's on a hill called Calvary, amen? That even in your loneliest, darkest, driest time in life, past, present, or even future, the cross reminds us he is still working, he is still pursuing, and he has never, ever left our side. The gospel hopefully teaches us, and I'm reminding us today, that it's the cross, not our sin or shame, that has the final worth, final word, excuse me, in defining our worth, identity, and purpose. Therefore, I encourage you tonight as I close, as we respond in song and in prayer, and again, usually when we respond after a sermon or during prayer times, this is usually the, the posture, and it's, it's biblically faithful, that our heads are bowed in reverence. Absolutely. He's a holy God, majestic God, like none other. But tonight, can I invite you, as you pray and as you sing, that you would allow God, as it says in the Psalms, to be the lifter of your head. So that you can see a God who is full of compassion, mercy, forgiveness, and grace, who with tears streaming down his face, says, come back home. That's not the way it was supposed to be. The enemy has a strategy, but I have the victory. Let me say that again. The enemy has a strategy, but God has the victory. Amen? He delights in you. You are beloved. With you, he is well pleased. I close with this story, and then I'm going to give an invitation, and hopefully we'll get a chance to respond. I, uh, some of you, okay, keep your comments to yourself, please. I actually was a volleyball player in my day. I, I, please, I told you to keep your comments to yourself, okay? The chuckles were comments. Thank you, okay? And actually, two years ago, for two consecutive spring seasons, I coached my daughters in their volleyball team. Okay, yes, the rec league was desperate for coaches. Okay, please keep your comments to yourself. Those chuckles were too, too uh, reveal too much, okay? So I coached my daughter's volleyball teams. Uh, I think the crowning moment of those two seasons for me was during a practice, not a game. We had one girl on our team, probably the most unathletic person I had seen throughout our whole league. And I don't know how, but she was assigned to my team. I believe it was a conspiracy, okay, from the other coaches. But she was on my team. Um, she, the whole season, she never got a ball over to serve, even in practice. Half the time when the ball came to her, she turned away and it hit her shoulder or other parts of her body instead of her arms and forearms. And in practice, no one wanted to be paired up with her to pepper with her. 
And if you know volleyball, it's the person. It's pretty much like if you're in baseball, you're, you're, you're throwing around. It's the person that you're assigned with just to kind of get, get better as you practice. Nobody. I remember when I said, hey, it's time to pair up. I, you know, th- again, these are middle school, and, uh, middle school girls. They automatically link arms with their, their buddy. And so I try, to, <laughs> yeah, I try to minimize that. But I started signing people. But again, people were locking arms like their life depended on it. And no one locked arms with this girl. And so as I'm assigning people who already assigned themselves, (laughs) I get down to this girl. Again, she had no one. And then my oldest daughter, Olivia, standing next to her. And I felt bad. I said, Olivia, you're going to be with... And this is my favorite memory of those two seasons. When I told Olivia who she's paired with, she said, yay. She clapped. Yay, I get to be with Megan. Sorry, I used her name. (laughs) But it was whispered and we're about 900 miles away. There's a lot of Megans in Virginia, so okay, I think we're pretty safe, okay. She clapped, she cheered to my amazement. And then I watched my, my oldest practice with her, and again, it wasn't practice because Olivia was chasing the balls that should have been hit towards her all over. But again, she had a smile, she had a hop in her step. No one wanted to be with Megan. But Olivia didn't see Megan for how she played, but for who she was. I'm here to tell you, Harvest, brothers and sisters and friends and guests, God does not see you based on what you've done or what's been done to you, but what Jesus has already done for you. And that's where your worth is. That is your significance. That is your value. And he wants to continue to to cover us with his grace so that we would know him more. We would represent that grace to others around us and to the ends of the earth wherever he sends us. God is pursuing us with his grace to the deepest part of our shame. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Let me close us. If you would bow with me again, even though you physically bow, I want you to, in your heart of hearts, be looking up to a a God who wants you to look up at him and see, again, face filled with tears, but with grace, compassion, mercy, and kindness that sent his son to, to the cross so that you would know that face. And let me begin by just giving one invitation, and then we'll, I'll turn it over to your pastor. If there is someone who has been around church, around the Bible, around Christ, around Christians, but has never, ever experienced Christ coming into their life by faith based on what the cross and the gospel declares that Christ was sinless, he died in our place, and he rose again over that sin and death. If there's anyone, if there's someone who has heard that, who's been around that, who has considered it, but maybe tonight, it's coming together. It's making sense. I believe it's not an accident. I believe if it's coming together, it's making sense today, not just because of my preaching, but God working in and around your life leading up to this moment, I would invite and encourage you, would you place your faith and trust in Christ to be all that he says he is, which is our redeemer, our rescuer, our friend, our Lord, and our king. And he's good. All those things, he's good. during this time of song and prayer and response, maybe tonight's the night when you say, Jesus, I believe. I receive. Help me to trust and obey by your spirit. Hopefully that will be your prayer for someone here tonight. And for the rest of us, answer these questions. Where are you? God 
Would you take away my fig leaves? Would you take away the loincloths? And once again, cover us with the grace that is found in Christ's blood and righteousness once again. Come out from hiding behind those things, hiding behind the trees that we feel like can keep us from avoiding God, which we can. And just say, God, bring me back to yourself. Address the sin, address the shame, address the struggle. God, speak to me tonight and let me to sur- allow me and help me to surrender more of these things so that it can be the way it was supposed to be, even more so than it was before today. So where, where are you? So I want you to just answer that in the form of a prayer. I'll pray for us and then I'll invite Pastor DL or the praise team to just, again, allow us to linger for a moment, but that could have an impact on eternity. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you from the very beginning. You, sh- you declared it was very good, but the enemy and then our selfishness, our self-reliance, our rebellion, we messed it up. But thank you, even then, it wasn't the final word. You're a God who looks for us, asks us questions out of a heart of compassion and wants to bring us back by your sacrifice, by Christ's sacrifice. So Lord, would you bring some back, some people back home to you today throughout this weekend? And maybe for someone today, they would come back home for the very first time into your family, into your household, into your presence to be covered by your grace once and for all. Maybe that's tonight for someone. And I pray that they would have the courage to respond to you by faith and trust. Thank you so much, God, for your word. Thank you that it's living and active. Thank you for Jesus who is risen, who's reigning, and he's returning. And he's also indwelling by his spirit this evening in our lives. Holy Spirit, have your way in us. And thank you that you are always working, that you are faithful and you never fail. In Jesus' name. Let's uh, spend a few minutes just uh, praying on our own as we.